Christmas, sir. It certainly is, Lucy. Since you have arrived. Look, I've put up with a lot since I got here. But this... We thought you were the witch. Yes. yes I'm sorry about that, but uh, in my defense, I have been driving one of these longer than the witch. I thought there was no Christmas in Narnia. No. Not for a long time. But the hope that you have brought your majesties is finally starting to weaken the witch's power. Still, I dare say you could do with these. Presents! <laughs> Sir, but I think I could be brave enough. I'm sure you could. Battles are ugly affairs. Susan, trust in this bow, and it will not easily miss. What happened to battles are ugly affairs? <laughs> Though you don't seem to have a problem making yourself heard, blow on this, and wherever you are, help will come. Thanks. Peter. The time to use these may be near at hand. Thank you, sir. These are tools, not toys. Bear them well and wisely. Now, I must be off. Winter is almost over. Things do pile up when you've been gone a hundred years. <laughs> Long live Aslan. And Merry Christmas! Oh man, I love that scene. I love that scene. I loved that scene the first time I saw it as we traveled through the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and, and in that moment where uh, everything is kind of nerve-wracking because the children are running away from what we think in the storyline is the evil witch after them, and, and there's this nervous moment where they're hiding from her, and, and we think they're going to get caught, and then it turns out to be Father Christmas. I mean, how awesome is that, right? And it's just a beautiful scene uh, in the unfolding story of Narnia, the, the story that C.S. Lewis uh, came up with. In case you don't know, that's what that scene is from, the movie of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and, and beautiful to watch it unfold. Now, when we first encounter that scene, though, whether reading the books or in the movie, we don't know this because we really haven't come to the end of the story yet. When we first see that scene, 
But that scene turns out to be a pivotal turning point in the unfolding story of the children's lives and of the entire story of Narnia. When you first encounter it, you don't know that, but later on in the movie, you're like, oh, that's when it all really began to shift. And yet, in the scene, one of the things that makes the scene so beautiful is that you can sense it. You don't know it, but you can feel it. Something has changed. Part of the reason why the scene becomes such a turning point in the movie is because up to now, what the children have been doing is running. They've been running for their lives. Uh, The evil that is in Narnia, the darkness, uh, led by the witch, has been after the children because they are part of a story that was prophesied and the evil wants to undo, overcome, and kill the children. And so they have been running from the darkness, hiding from the darkness because they knew they would be overcome if captured, right? And it is at this moment in the movie that you feel like that's about to change. Why do you feel that way? Well, one, because as Father Christmas said, there has not been Christmas in Narnia for a long time But Aslan is on the move, and so spring is coming, and things are changing. You just feel it. You're like, that shouldn't be happening, but it is. There is a sense that a bigger story is emerging. On top of that, this scene is where Father Christmas pulls out gifts and gives them to the children, except these gifts are no toy, are they? I mean, as the gifts are given, did you feel it? You're like, Well, that gift you don't give to someone if they're going to go play around in a sandbox. You give that gift to someone because something bigger is coming. Lucy gets her potion that heals any wound and the dagger in case things go uh, get difficult. You get the bow and arrow and call for help and you get a sword and shield. There's something about that that you go, this story's just getting started and what Father Christmas is handing to these kids is to give them something that is going to seemingly cause them to have to engage in a battle rather than run from a battle. Now, C.S. Lewis writes these stories of the magical world of Narnia as a picture of our human story. So as he studied the scriptures, as he engaged in the gospel, his picture of the gospel and the story of the gospel and the story of us and God unfolds in the story of Narnia. So when we go to the scriptures, we ought to see a lot of what we're catching there fold, uh, unfold in the story of the gospel. And it is exactly what we see. See, if you know the story of scripture at all, you know That in the very beginning of time, when we, the human race, were created in Adam and Eve, we were created to have perfect, unhindered relationship with God in absolute freedom, experiencing the fullness and goodness of God, and then imaging that reality to one another and to all of creation, becoming people designed to enjoy God and to make Him known, to know God and make Him known. We abandoned that story when we bought into the lie of the enemy that said, if you know what he knows, if you become like him, you'll have a better story. You don't need to live under his authority, just do it your way, know what he knows, become a God like him, and you'll be fine. Image yourself, write your own destiny. So we ate of the forbidden fruit seeking divinity, and we didn't find divinity, we found death. And in that act, we were uh, moved out of the Garden of Eden, which is where we were experiencing the fullness of God, and we were now a fallen race, a race that had 
and infected ourselves with a disease that was highly contagious and highly deadly, and we all had it. God's engagement with us early on in the story is a beautiful unfolding thing. He begins immediately with Adam and Eve. He makes promises to them that tells them immediately, your human story is not over. It's going to continue on, and I have a plan for it. You don't know what the plan is, but know that there is one, and it is going to go onward. God continues to interact with the human race. Uh, You know, we turn into the worst of ourselves right before the flood. He rescues us from our own self-destruction in the flood. After the flood with Noah, we turn into the worst of ourselves, acting like gods and building towers to prove it. And he divides us into nations with uh, language groups so that we will not act foolishly as, as people who think we are gods re-entering a space that would get us back to the, 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 the season right before the flood. And then, once these nations exist, he calls out for himself a person named Abraham. He calls him out by faith and says, I'm not going to tell you where we're going, but follow me. Abraham begins to follow God. Abraham has a son, Isaac, and God makes promises to Abraham about Isaac being the beginning of an extraordinary story that he's writing into our human story. Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau and Jacob uh, are, the, are the continuation of the story until Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob has 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel and named as such. One of his sons is Joseph. Joseph, through a crazy set of circumstances, is taken to Egypt just in time to rise up in Egypt before a famine was going to wipe out the story of God among his people, but Joseph is set up in Egypt to bring them and rescue them from the famine. In the safety of Egypt, the 12 brothers and their families begin to grow as a people group. And over a period of a few hundred years, we see this people group become uh, numerous and strong. Egypt realizes that this people group is a great workforce. It probably started in a mutual relationship of benefit where the Israelites were working for the Egyptians, helping build this space that had rescued them from famine. But it quickly turned into, you belong to us, and they were enslaved by Egypt. God, through a miraculous set of circumstances, rescues the people of Israel out of Egypt through plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and a cloud of fire and a pillar of fire and awesome, awesome stuff. Provides for them, declaring through them to us and for them, I am with you, I will keep you safe. I will rescue you, stay near by me. Then God, with this people group, gives them some instructions about how to live. He gives them the law. The law is good. The law comes down from the mountain through Moses uh, as God gives it to Moses, and the law begins to paint a picture. It paints a picture of who we are and what we need. The law says, listen, you got to stay super close to God because you, if you do not stay close to God, you derail. You quickly diminish into the disease that exists in you, sin and death, and you will find yourself overcome by evil. So stay close to God. Here's how you do that. 
It also said, listen, not only do you need to stay close to God, but this disease in you constantly corrupts. And so what you need to do is you need to have a constant system of sort of uh, cleaning the wounds, if you will. And so he sets up the sacrificial system and the repentive system, and they got to come to God regularly all the time. Sorry for this, sorry for this, sorry for this, and then get cleaned up because it just constant. It's like a disease that's eating away, corrupting, 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 and they are fighting with God to keep that going. It's a preservation of sorts, like a band-aid for something that's eating away at you. God also says to them, listen, you are weak, you are vulnerable, you are easily overcome, you are corruptible in every way because you have this disease, and it flares up anytime you are far from me and you are not regularly cleaning this thing out and staying close, and it flares up in particular whenever you play with the other human beings on this planet. Because they too have the disease, and when you're with them, you start acting like them, and then the disease flares up and everything goes south quickly. So, you can't play with the rest of the human beings. You can't get involved in their stories. You can't be around them. They are unclean, as you are, but I'm protecting you. If you go play with them, if you go hang out with them, you're going to be infected by evil, overcome by evil, and you will find yourself in a giant mess. You do not have the power to overcome evil with good because you do not have good in you enough to overcome. So we see the system set up in the Old Testament where God separates his people out from the rest of the world, tells them, be afraid of the world. It is unclean, it is dangerous, and it will overcome you because the darkness that exists in the world that also exists in you, you are only safe from it in the system I've set up, staying close to me and repenting regularly and being separate. So the Jewish people grow up in a world where the sand is unclean in that place because people walked on it. That person's unclean. Those people are unclean. Dead people are unclean. Everything's unclean. Stay safe. Run away. And that's how they live. And so as we see God work in their story, we see it play out exactly that way. Every time they stay close to God, follow the law, do the sacrificial stuff, don't play with the other human beings, they are, they're decent. They're, they're surviving. Every time they go play with the other human beings and they abandon these systems, where do they end up? They end up foolish, corrupt, acting stupid, and they end up in bondage with some nation, and then God has to send a redeemer to go get them out. And every time he sends a redeemer, whether a prophet or a judge or a warrior, the redeemer always starts with, repent and come back to God. Because when you stop doing that, you ended up overcome by evil. That's how our story rolled. As that story was unfolding, and as we, the people of God, were trying to stay away from everything, into that story, a scene emerges in the scriptures. It is a scene that when you first encounter it, you feel certain things about it, like the scene with Father Christmas, but you don't know the impact of this scene yet. You don't know that this scene is the pivotal turning point in the story of us, of our human development. That scene is found uh, on a quiet evening in a little town called Bethlehem. There's a woman, Mary, who had been conceived uh, by the Holy Spirit. A child had been conceived in her by the Holy Spirit. This child, we are told, is the savior of the world, and we don't really know much about it other than the angel Gabriel had told her, this is going to be awesome. Uh, her husband-to-be, Joseph, marries her, and uh, the, uh, the, the leader of the land of the Roman Empire, Caesar, 
he requires a census to be taken because he wants to count the people so he can figure out how many taxes he can count on so he can figure out how many roads he can build, how many wars he can go into and conquer more land. That's how it rolls. So he demands accounting. To count, Mary and Joseph travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the city of David. Uh, Joseph is of the line of David. Mary is of the line of David. So Joseph had to go to the city of Bethlehem to register there. Mary decides to go with him. They figure they can make it to Bethlehem without much trouble because she's not that far along yet, but it takes a little longer. And by the time they arrive in Bethlehem on a quiet evening, she is well in labor and she needs to lay down and birth this baby. So they are put into a little cave, a a little uh, shelter where animals live. When Jesus is born onto this planet, he is laid in the feeding trough, which has hay in it, keeps them nice and warm and cozy, and they are safe in this little area, this little animal shelter. Uh, Some angels declare some incredible things to some shepherds in the field nearby Bethlehem that night. They come and worship. The star from the east appears and moves. Kings come and worship. Amazing things happen in the early part of this story. This scene of Jesus arriving You can sense in the scene the supernatural realities of the angels, the star, the declarations, the virgin birth and conception of Mary, the traveling to Bethlehem, the fulfillment of prophecies, and you start going, something's happening here that's pretty cool. It's kind of like Father Christmas. Not sure what it means yet, but it's going to mean something awesome. It feels like God is on the move. It feels like God is up to something that he's talked about, whispered about, but we have not yet realized. Remember at this point when this scene appears the first time on our planet, the Jewish people hadn't heard from God for 400 years. So they had lived in relative silence from the prophets until this moment. As that story unfolds and we sense a coming of something bigger, that something bigger is realized in the unfolding story of the life of Jesus. So his birth is kind of the scene where the sleigh comes up, you pop your head up, and there's Father Christmas. And you're like, that's not the witch, that's awesome. The rest of that scene is the unfolding life of Jesus, right? So Jesus comes onto the planet, and as he grows into an adult, and he begins to live on this planet in ministry, we see something extraordinary unfold in the life of Jesus. You see, Jesus begins to act very differently than any of the rabbis before him. Rabbis during this time and in the time past acted appropriately according to the laws of God that did what? Stay away from the other human beings, stay close to me, repent all the time. In other words, be very afraid of the darkness, be very afraid of the evil, it will overcome you, stay away, hide, run. So what did the rabbis do? The rabbis were the example of this, they ought to be. If a famous rabbi was traveling, he'd usually have his disciples around him so that no unclean person would touch him, they would touch one of the disciples first, then they would be infected by the horror before he was. So the rabbis were the most afraid. They were the people that were the most like, oh, okay, okay, I can't be in that house, I can't go near that person. Jesus comes onto the scene and we see something crazy. Instead of being afraid of all of the darkness, all of the unclean stuff around him, all of the horror, Jesus seems to break through the disciples every time and do crazy stuff. We know this because everybody gets mad at him all the time. All the other rabbis, are like, what are you thinking? 
what you just did is horrible. You're going to get all infected and crazy. And so here's what Jesus does, right? If there are people that you shouldn't hang out with, he hangs out with them. He touches them. He hugs them. They hug him. It's terrible. If there's places you shouldn't go, Samaria and, and places like that, other side of the Sea of Galilee, in, in the Decapolis area, don't go there. There are demons there. The, this, the red, the, on, on the Sea of Galilee itself, when there's a storm, stay away, right? All these places that the, the people of God have always avoided and run from, Jesus walks right into them. And so early on in the story of Jesus, you're like, this guy's insane, and he's going to pay a high price for it, because he's going to get all messed up and infected by sin, and then we're going to go, see, 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 we told you, except that's not what happens, is it? See, what happens with Jesus is crazy. Every time he enters a space that we don't belong, because we are susceptible, vulnerable, and quickly affected by evil, overcome, he walks into those spaces and then he walks right back out again. And he seems perfectly fine when he comes out. And what's super crazy, super cool, is that the people that were in there that were overcome by evil and that needed to be avoided because they were full of sin and death, they come out with him and they seem fine too, right? So if there's dead people, they're suddenly alive. If they're sinners, they're suddenly pure. If they're people that, that have, have, have had a disaster of a life, they're suddenly okay. Sins are forgiven and, and people are healed and blind see and dead are risen. Demons run for their lives from this guy. He goes in a cave full of demons and suddenly they're pigs and they're running off a cliff. And he's like, what just happened? Everywhere he goes, people are set free. People are moved out of death and bondage into life and freedom. And it dawns on us as we watch the story unfold that this, in fact, is probably our Messiah. Like the strong one, the, the one who was promised to come, who would, who would not shy away from evil, but would, but would, would confront it, would, would, would dare to face it, would, would even overcome it. And so you get the sense from Jesus, and I'm sure the disciples did, man, stay with this guy, stay behind this guy, and he will clear the way for you, and you won't even have to worry about sin and death anymore because everything he touches seems to get fixed. And so if you just stay right behind him, by the time he gets through the sin and death and it gets to you, it'll be pure and we are safe. You see, that's how we think. We are now safe because we don't have to confront sin and death anymore because he'll do it for us. And certainly, his great work of redemption is exactly that. But then Jesus begins to teach. He begins to teach, not just live his life, but teach. And he starts saying the stuff that turns upside down everything we've ever encountered as a people of God before the redemptive work of Jesus. Listen to some of the things he does. We encounter this in multiple spaces, but some of my favorites are right here. So Jesus is on this mountain teaching. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. It makes sense. He was on a mountain and he taught. And so there you go, Sermon on the Mount. So um, uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is sitting with people, a crowd, and he's teaching. It's on page 559, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide. 559, Matthew chapter 5, and we are going to be looking at verse 13. Listen to what Jesus teaches here. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall, it salt, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. 
and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus starts teaching about this ideology that says, hold on, hold on, hold on. You were not created to hide, to run, and to sneak away. If you are salt to the world, the the preservation of the story of, of, of humankind as I work through you, what good are you if you're hiding away, if you are no longer demonstrating the precious reality of the gospel? You are the light of the world. What do you do with light? Do you crawl under a basket and go, I hope nobody sees me? No, no, you throw the basket off and you, you walk. What does a light do? I mean, literally, when you have a candle or a flashlight, where does, why would you have one of those? Because there's darkness somewhere, and what do you do with light? You walk into the darkness, and it brings light. That's right. You don't walk into the light. It would be crazy. Can you imagine? There's a dark room. There's a room with a light on. I turn the flashlight on and move into the room with the light. I'm like, that makes no sense. You need the flashlight for the dark. And light goes into darkness. So Jesus says, you are like light now, walking into the darkness, like I am also light. So we begin to get this clue of things happening. Jesus teaches his disciples over the next couple of years about the extraordinary nature of the kingdom of God coming to this planet and working now in Christ, but also in us. By the time he's done teaching his disciples, They are still fearful disciples, but he says something to them on a particular day. Acts chapter one, verse eight. You can turn there if you like with me. Acts chapter one, verse eight is on page 628. And here's what Jesus is doing. He has now lived his life. He has died on the cross. He has been resurrected from that death. He has shown himself to many, including his disciples. And he is about to ascend into heaven, literally float up before their eyes so that when they face the great afflictions they will need to face, they don't have to go, I wonder if he was real. I I don't know, man. I mean, the whole floating thing could have been like strings. I don't know. Right? I mean, they saw him die. They saw him rise from the dead. They saw him rise into heaven. So for those guys who were the foundation of everything we know today, who had to even write the scriptures, there needed to be a sense of, uh, hold on, hold on. You can go ahead and kill me, but he floated. Okay? So what do you want me to say? And so Jesus is about to do that. And right before he does that, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says this, but you, that is to the disciples, to us, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, we get that part, you will carry my message among your people, but then it gets all weird, and in all Judea and Samaria. We don't go to Samaria. Samaria is unclean. Samaria is infected. Samaria is dark. No, no, you will go to Judea and Samaria. And wait, not only that, and to the end of the earth. Jesus says, listen, when I empower you with my spirit, and you are found in me, then what's going to happen to you is extraordinary, and you will no longer run and hide, but you will charge into the darkness, and things will happen. These uh, fearful disciples, after the encounter with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, become powerful, empowered, fearless apostles. And they begin to live the same extraordinary life that we saw Jesus live, this courageous charging into the darkness as though they think they can overcome. And then they begin to write, these apostles. Paul, in particular, writes to us in Romans chapter 12. Listen to this. Romans chapter 12, page 655, Paul writes these words. Verse four of chapter 12. For as in one body... 
we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. He's talking about the people of God, us, the church. And individually, members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, right? So what do we find out? We find out through the apostles, through the Spirit of God, that we belong to the same team and we are given gifts, each of us, according to His grace for us. The gifts are different, but they are all important to the story into which we have been called. Just like in the scene with Father Christmas, each child got a different gift. Can you imagine if that scene unfolded this way? My sword's bigger than your dagger. I mean, nobody does that when you're in an encounter like that. You don't go, you got the bow and arrow? I wanted the bow and arrow. I got a dumb sword. What is the deal with Santa Claus, man? No. You stand and you think to yourself, man, we're going to need that bow and arrow. I'm glad you got it. And we're going to need this sword. And Lucy, hold on to that potion because when we're going to be wounded, we're going to need you to run in and save the day. So glad he gave it all to us as a unit, each different with different purpose. See, we are told we are part of a story now where we have been uniquely gifted and empowered to walk into the war zone of evil and death and to go and be conquerors there on behalf of Christ. And in fact, in this very passage in Romans, if you look at verse nine and travel down to, the, uh, to verse 21, you'll see the most extraordinary unpacking of what the Christian person should look like, right? I mean, it is beautiful letting our love be genuine, hating evil, holding fast to good, loving one another with brotherly affection, outdoing each other in honor, all this awesome stuff born right out of you've all been gifted to do awesome stuff as part of the story. And then it ends here, this particular passage, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are called to a different story now where we don't run and hide from the corruption of evil. We, empowered by the Spirit in Christ, advance into it for the sake of Christ and the kingdom of God. Look, Paul writes later on in 2 Corinthians and describes this very reality to us. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, page 667, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself, but look, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. A look at verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ or for Christ, making God making his appeal through us. See, what, what Paul is telling us here through the Holy Spirit is this. There was a time in our human story where we were so susceptible to the realities of sin and death because we were still totally corruptible without having our souls rescued yet, where we needed to stay close to God, follow the repentive sacrificial system, and stay away from everybody. But Jesus has now come, he has redeemed, he has restored, he has empowered, he has made new, and in our new creation, as we are made new, we are now different and need to therefore live differently and act differently than we did before when we were afraid. What he's saying is you do not need to be afraid anymore. That is over now because I have come. 
And so what he says is, we are not simply recipients of Christ's rescue, but in His rescue, He has recreated us to be participants in the rescuing of others on His behalf by His power. That is a different story. And so we walk into our story with the revelation we have of Christmas and the coming of Jesus and His life, death, and resurrection after that. And we realize that the joy and beauty of the Christmas story is the first inkling of a revelation to us that we would be forever different than we were before Jesus found us. Not just lost in the sin and death in which we lived, but now even as the people of God responding differently to sin and death. We used to be afraid. We used to have reason to be afraid. But that reason is now gone. You see, now we have been given an extraordinary power and wondrous gifts to be able to engage in the story of God, both in our own hearts and souls and to those around us. We are invited by God to participate in our own sanctification. That is, us becoming more like Jesus. Did you know that God said he would finish the work that he began in you, bring it to completion? Isn't that great news? But he also said, while I'm working to finish it, participate in it. Be holy as I am holy. Act holy like I am. He's like, you get to be part of your own sanctification. So we get to participate in the fight to make us more like Jesus, even though he said he would get it done. And then he also said this, I'm going to redeem the world. It's done. It's finished. I'm going to do it. Would you like to participate? Sure, that sounds awesome. It's hard, but I will gift you and empower you to its end because evil will no longer overcome you. You can overcome it. Now, can you choose evil? Sure you can. Can you act foolish? Sure you can. Can you go run out there and be all crazy? Go, I want to sin. Yeah, you can, but that's not because you're being overcome by evil. It's because you're choosing it. And that's kind of dumb because you don't have to anymore. But what we do get to do is say, I also get to choose now to live as a participant in the redemptive story of God. Looking at my own heart and soul and actively participating in being holy and looking at the world and actively charging into where hard places are, difficult places are, places that are hard for me. Have you been hurt by others? Sure you have, I have too. Some of you deeply. Do you know that you get to forgive now? You get to do that. You get to be free from that by forgiving. I can't forgive, no yes you can. You can choose not to, but you can. Do you know that maybe you've hurt others badly and you just can't live with yourself? You you know, you you, you get to not have to live there anymore. And you get to say, because of what Christ has done, I can go and seek forgiveness. And even if it's not given, I can live free because he's given it to me. See, we can live differently now. See, the, the the four kids in the story, they each had their own track, didn't they? When they entered the story, they entered the wardrobe, they came in, they were all very different. Lucy was very childlike. She was not yet skeptical. She was not yet burned by the world like Peter and Susan were. So she kind of came in with starry eyes like, it's magical. She's the one like, I think I can be brave enough. And you're like, oh, it's so beautiful. Just give her five more years. She'll forget about that, right? It's just a little time. That'll kill that. She's still young. That's why Jesus said, be like a child. That's the best place to live. Trust me. So we see that childlikeness in Lucy. Then we are drawn to her deeply. And God says, live there. Trust me like a child. We see 
We see Susan, she's been a little more jaded by the world. You don't believe squat. She walks in that thing and she's like, that's trouble, that's trouble. He ain't coming, that's bad. We should go home, we should go home. This is all bad, right? And then she is the one that is afraid because she can't trust, and yet she's the one that discovers wonders in the land. Peter, he is the cautious one, right? He comes in, he's a little afraid. I mean, he's gotta you know, hold back, but he holds everyone back. That's why he doesn't charge in. He's like, stay, stay back through the door again. This place looks bad. He's very afraid. He runs from the witch, he, he, all of that. And Edmund, what does Edmund do? Well, he likes Turkish delight. <laughs> yes, he does. Come on now, I know you do too. So do I. And so Edmund's the one that falls into sin and falls into evil and we think, well, his story's shot. Peter's story's shot because he's not brave. Uh, Susan can't trust and Lucy's little. Give her time. You know where the movie ends? where the story ends, with all four of them charging at the witch, unafraid, unafraid of the battle, unafraid of dying, unafraid of what will come. You know why? Because in their own way, each of them encountered the Messiah in this story represented as a lion named Aslan. And because they encountered him, sin was forgiven for Edmund, bravery was sparked in Peter, trust was born in Susan, and man, little Lucy was brave and they charged together at the witch. And even though at moments in the last battle they knew, we will not overcome, she's too strong, what did they know bigger than that? When it gets really bad, Aslan will come. And he does, the movie ends with a lion launching off a cliff in a big roar as he demolishes the witch. And we're like, yep, that's our story. That's our story. So. Know this, the Christmas story could come and go in an ordinary fashion this year, or it can be for you and I, the wardrobe, the doorway into wonder. Starting what we talked about last week, into the wonder of our rescue, right? He came to rescue us, and there's more to the story than the world we live in, but also into wonder, discovering that through his rescue, he did not simply rescue our souls, he also restored our created purpose empowered us to live boldly on this planet, not fearing what evil throws at us, but trusting that God will always be bigger than that because God is in us through the Holy Spirit and we belong to Jesus who has given us courage and the Father has gifted us with gifts for the war against evil and we have been told that though we can still choose to act like fools, we don't have to because we can participate in our own sanctification just as we can participate in the redemption and sanctification of others. So let us use this Christmas story as the pivotal scene in our human story that reminds us of who we are in Christ more than we could have ever imagined we would be. New creations made to be reconciled with God and to be ministers of reconciliation of others to God himself. What a story we are part of. What a time of year to celebrate that story. Let's pray. God, thank you for all that you have done for us, all that you have done in us, all that you have done around us, all that you are doing through us. Not because you need us, not because 
We have to get it done, otherwise redemption won't be realized. We have to get it done, otherwise our own personal sanctification will not be realized. But instead, the very opposite. That you've already promised to get the job done, but you invite us to be courageous participants in the story instead of fearful disciples hiding until you get it finished. May we take the gifts you've given us as one body and charge the darkness in this world, charge into the hard places, charge into the difficult spaces, charge into the lives of hurt people. And whether they have hurt us and we need to forgive them or whether we have hurt them and we need to seek repentance, whether they just need someone to love them even when they don't know how to be loved. God, send us out of this place into Christmas and may Christmas become the doorway into wonder for us, the wonder of our soul rescue, the wonder of our purpose restored. And may we live our lives not as fools dabbling in what we are no longer overcome by, but as courageous followers of Jesus, participating in the redemptive process in our own hearts and in the hearts of the world. On your behalf, by your power, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.